to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be having an on-the-ground report about the meeting between uh, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping in Bali, Indonesia, in the run-up to this year's G20 summit. Uh, Also going to be talking about the emergence of right-wing violence inside Bolivia and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. With democracy on the ballot, we have to remember these first principles. Democracy means the rule of the people, not the rule of monarchs or the moneyed, but the rule of the people. I'm not sure how Joseph Biden can say this with a straight face, considering the only campaign promise he's kept so far is to Wall Street bankers and corporate oligarchs when he told them that nothing will fundamentally change. But he did say that, quote, but this hypocrisy is proving to be glaring once again as a report published in the Washington Post over the weekend revealed that the National Intelligence Council has exposed the legal and illegal efforts at influencing American politics that have been carried out by the government of the United Arab Emirates. Oh, you thought I was going to say China or Russia, didn't you? Well, this investigation into the influence operation of a foreign government focuses on the allies of the U.S., and this time it's the dictatorship of the UAE and how they used above-board lobbying and campaign contributions in the hundreds of millions of dollars to think tanks and even to universities to produce position papers and curricula to steer public policy and public sentiment in their favor. But there were other efforts that weren't above board that were actually criminal. The report reveals that the UAE hired three former U.S. intelligence and military officials to help them surveil dissidents, politicians, journalists, and U.S. companies. Court documents revealed that the U.S. prosecutors said that the men helped the UAE break into computers in the United States and other countries. The whole time we were told that Russia hacked the DNC servers and the elections, but the UAE literally had former U.S. spies and military members actually hacking actual computers. Last year, also, all three admitted in court that they did provide sophisticated hacking technology to the UAE. They agreed to surrender their security clearances and they agreed to pay about $1.7 million dollars to resolve criminal charges rather than go to prison. The Justice Department touted the settlement as a first-of-its-kind resolution, and this doesn't seem like a good thing. The Washington Post also highlights the case of Thomas Barrick, a longtime advisor to former President Donald Trump, who was acquitted of charges alleging that he worked as an agent of the UAE and lied to federal investigators about it. U.S. prosecutors accused Barrick of exploiting his access to Trump to benefit the UAE and working a secret back channel for communications that involved passing sensitive information to Emirati officials. And the evidence introduced in court included thousands of messages, social media posts, 
flight records, and communications showing that Emirati officials provided Barrick with talking points for media appearances in which he praised, he meaning Trump, praised the UAE. After one such interview where Trump spouted the talking points from Emirate officials, Barrick emailed a contact in the UAE saying, I nailed it for the home team, referring to the UAE. Barrick was never convicted because the prosecutors couldn't prove that his actions rose to the level of a crime, because even the jury realized that's just how politics in the U.S. works. It sure is funny, though, that an entire political party's platform was built on this idea that Trump was in the pocket of and colluding with Putin and Russia. And here Trump's advisor was comfortably in the pocket of the UAE instead. But not a peep from Democrats and Biden about that, because... Biden is firmly in the same pocket. In their defense, the UAE's ambassador to Washington, Youssef Al-Otaiba, said he is, quote, proud of the UAE's influence and good standing in the U.S. It has been hard-earned and well-deserved. It is the product of decades of close UAE-U.S. cooperation and effective diplomacy. It reflects common interests and shared values. Shared values like democracy, of which there really isn't one in the U.S. and there definitely is none of in the UAE, as there are no elections or political parties there and no independent judiciary. Criticism of the government is banned and trade unions and homosexuality are outlawed. Freedom House, a nonprofit that states that its mission is to monitor the state of freedom and democracy around the world and help shape the debate on the most pressing issues of our time, ranks the UAE among the least free countries in the world. And that's saying a lot for Freedom House, which is not at all unbiased in its definition of freedom and democracy because their board of directors consists of prominent businesses and labor leaders, former U.S. diplomats, and senior government officials, scholars, and journalists. So you know that they favor capitalist countries as the most allegedly free and democratic. So the fact that even they recognize that the UAE, the longtime ally of the U.S., is not a democracy is saying a lot. Nevertheless, the U.S. has sold the UAE some of its most sophisticated and lethal military equipment, the only Arab country to receive such equipment since the U.S. doesn't want to give any other country in the region, certainly not any Arab nation, a military edge over Israel, which lets you know where the UAE stands in this relationship between the U.S. and Israel, that other undemocratic apartheid state. A previous Washington Post report also revealed that over the past seven years, 280 retired U.S. service members have worked as military contractors and consultants for the UAE more than for any other country, and that the advisor jobs pay very handsomely. Some politicians in the Biden administration are trying to address this issue of foreign influence, even from allies in U.S. politics. 
such as a bill introduced last year by Representative Katie Porter, Democrat from California, that would prohibit political campaign committees from accepting money from lobbyists registered with a foreign country, and other proposed efforts like increasing disclosure requirements, efforts to provide more resources to the Justice Department's Foreign Influence Unit, and efforts to standardize filing data. But the fact is that it's simply standard operating procedure for U.S. politicians to write legislation and issue policy positions that are favorable to the countries that pay them the most. And according to this latest U.S. intelligence report, those countries are not named Russia or China. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having an on-the-ground report from the G20 meeting, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today from Bali, Indonesia, by Mindia Gavashelli, Sputnik News Editor. Mindia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. And Mindia, as I say, you're in Bali, Indonesia, the site of this year's G20 meeting. Uh, Of course, one of uh, the most prominent uh, uh, developments that have happened there so far was a meeting between U.S. President uh, Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. And uh, just this morning, uh, we saw Joe Biden giving some comments about uh, uh, the nature and content of that conversation. And so uh, just wondering your sort of top line thoughts, not only on the meeting between uh, Biden and Xi Jinping, but uh, uh, what you've been seeing, what you've been hearing so far at the G20 and just how you're sort of uh, analyzing things at this point. Well, the actual uh, G20 summit starts tomorrow and tomorrow we will know whether or not uh, G20 countries will manage to at least agree on some sort of a joint communique. I know that the Indonesian president has been complaining that his country has to host the perhaps most difficult summit in its history, because in the current situation, tensions between the largest economies are such that they not only cannot agree on some big agreements uh, that will move world economy forward, but they cannot agree even on a joint statement that would reflect common values. So I know that right now the the delegations are trying to work something out. And if they are successful, then perhaps tomorrow we will see a joint communique from uh, the G20 countries. If not, then that would mean that the differences between Uh, the largest world economies are such that they are unable to even form a 
common declaration of intent. But you're right. Today, all eyes were on President Biden and President Xi because they had that first uh, one-on-one meeting in person since both of them became leaders of their countries. And on the eve of this meeting, we uh, were able to have a conversation with a senior U.S. official who was in charge of preparing it. And the expectations were very low, or at least the U.S. delegation was uh, downplaying the expectations before the meeting, saying that, guys, you shouldn't expect a joint press conference. You shouldn't expect even a joint communicator. And I have to say she was right. Uh, both uh, countries released their own readouts of the meeting, and there are slight uh, differences in accents, what exactly both countries are emphasizing. But after the meeting, Joe Biden held his own press conference, and he tried to be very upbeat about the meeting. And the, But the main result we are seeing right now is that the two countries agreed on renewing the regular lines of communication. And uh, this is this has been presented by Biden as a big success. However, if you think why those lines were cut, then you will know that they were like China refused to communicate with the U.S. administration after first Nancy Pelosi's visit in August and then a, a row of visits by other U.S. officials uh, to Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, now we are, present, we, we are being presented with a success that isn't really a success, but just, uh, you know, going back to more or less normal business in the relations between the two countries. And if there was no provocations from the U.S. side, then we wouldn't have lost months of talks between the two countries since August to begin with. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, provocations from the U.S., Mendia, because it's the kind of language that uh, is coming from uh, the State Department and the Biden administration toward uh, Xi in this meeting that I think gives us a hint into what was said, where uh, apparently the White House said that the Biden administration or Joe Biden himself raised rights abuses, Chinese human rights abuses in Hong Kong, Tibet and Xinjiang, which have no basis in any fact whatsoever, and that uh, Biden criticized Beijing's, quote, coercive and increasingly aggressive actions toward Taiwan while claiming that America's one China policy had not changed. That's all provocative, aggressive language based on conjecture and U.S. propaganda against China. And I'm wondering what the press conference from uh, China, what did Xi Jinping say uh, in his press conference in response to what was said uh, to him about these alleged human rights abuses and such from Biden? Uh, we knew in advance that the Chinese delegation will not have a press conference after the meeting. This is just not how Chinese diplomacy operates. However, China released uh, a press release, a press statement after the meeting, emphasizing that the U.S. Agree, confirmed that it recognizes de facto Taiwan as 
uh, part of China. So they consider that a big success. And that's why China agreed to restore lines of communications with the U.S. And we know that uh, Biden instructed Secretary Blinken to visit China and move forward with talks with his Chinese counterparts. So uh, as I, at the same time, you're right, Biden at his press conference came out and said and underscored that one China policy hasn't changed. However, we need to remember that this comes from a man who earlier several times said that the U.S. will militarily assist Taiwan because allegedly it has a legal obligation to do so, which we know is not true. U.S. does not have an obligation to help Taiwan militarily. So, uh, you know, you as usual, both sides are trying to show that they got what they wanted from this meeting. The U.S. says that uh, they're happy to restore relations with China and they don't want Cold War 2.0, while China says that the U.S. recognizes Taiwan as China, and therefore we will restore the lines of communications with the Americans. Yeah, and see, this this is, um, you know, what kind of, uh, uh, something I find kind of interesting, because, I mean, uh, as you point out, I mean, Biden is fundamentally saying that uh, nothing will fundamentally change as it pertains to Washington's um, uh, uh, orientation towards China. And so, I mean, do you feel then, Mindy, that uh, the U.S. is maybe settling back into this posture of, you know, what they deem strategic ambiguity as it pertains to, to Taiwan? Uh, as you know, some of the contradictory statements coming from Biden, um, both in in terms of his most recent press conference in Indonesia and uh, from the recent past as it pertains to issues of Taiwan and China. Or, I mean, you know, as you say, as these things tend to play out, uh, and I think you're correct when you say that each side is, you know, is showing that they got what they wanted from the other. So, you know, that uh, sort of boosts their profile uh, in their uh, respective countries. But, I mean, in terms of Washington and its uh, a stance towards China, I mean, do you think that uh, we're kind of seeing a resurgence of the strategic ambiguity piece? Or, I mean, is this, uh, you know, just more or less kind of a formality that we're seeing between these two world leaders? Sean, I think we need to remember that all the events that happened around Taiwan were preceding uh, the re-election of Xi as Chinese president. Uh, so it started in August and then went on for several months on the eve of the Communist Party session uh, uh, in, in China in October. Uh, if you're asking about my personal opinion, I think that it was directed to China because the U.S. wanted to show that Xi Jinping is not as strong as he says he is. So it was, it was a deliberate provocation to show that China cannot stop U.S. officials if they want to go to Taiwan. It was done to show that the U.S. can sell Taiwan weapons and China cannot stop it, uh, that the U.S. will declare that it will support Taiwan militarily and China can't do 
anything about it. So all these actions were aimed at showing a weakness of sorts uh, for some sort of weakness of Xi Jinping on the eve of his re-election to send a message to his domestic opposition. Uh, however, uh, all those efforts failed. Xi Jinping has been re-elected, and now the U.S. has to leave with the fact that Mr. Uh, so that he will be president for the next five years. So now there's no point to provoke China and its leadership any longer. So the only conclusion I can make is that it was a deliberate provocation to show some weakness of Chinese leadership and influence the elections in China. However, all those efforts failed. Uh, Xi Jinping has been reelected for the next five years, and now the U.S. has to reestablish its relations with China because those are the two major world superpowers, and one way or another, they need to have a dialogue. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the response of the uh, Indonesian president to this, you know, stalemate of a, of a meeting. What is the stake that Indonesia has in this? And particularly, how do you see the rest of the G20 playing out with this, you know, simmering tension between the two leaders that really doesn't seem like it's going to get resolved? Not really. Indonesia's official policy is enemy to no one friend to everyone. That's why the Indonesian president went to Moscow and Kiev, to both capitals on uh, the eve of this summit, trying to uh, negotiate some uh, sort of a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. Um, Obviously, it's a really hard task, so he wasn't very successful, but at least the Indonesians are trying to set a table for future negotiations. And obviously, it's a matter of international prestige for this country of more than 200 million people to host such a summit. And they they would really hate it if the Indonesian G20 summit fails to produce uh, a joint statement and to produce some sort of a joint framework for biggest world economies to move forward. However, it's a real possibility. We will see tomorrow how the situation develops. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Mindia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And we're back here on By Any Means Necessary. And uh, Jackie, this weekend, there was actually a really good uh, demonstration that took place uh, here in D.C. as uh, indigenous activists and organizers uh, across the country um, gathered here in D.C. for the culmination of uh, a, a series of events demanding the freedom of Leonard Peltier, uh, the longest held Native American political prisoner in the United States, who has been uh, unjustly uh, locked up for more than 40 years. And so coinciding both with that event and the fact that the Thanksgiving holiday is coming up here in the U.S., I wanted to play this uh, 2019 clip uh, from Mumia Abu-Jamal, who's actually reading a Thanksgiving address from uh, uh, Leonard Peltier. And so uh, I want to go ahead and get to that uh, address, and then uh, we'll come back and talk a bit. The year of 2019 is coming to a close, and with it comes the day most Americans set aside as a day for Thanksgiving. As I let my mind wander beyond the steel bars and concrete walls, I try to imagine what the people who live outside the prison gates are doing and what they're thinking. Do they ever think of the indigenous people who were forced from their homelands? Do they understand that with every step they take, no matter the direction, that they are walking on stolen land? Can they imagine, even for one minute, what it was like to watch the suffering of the women, the children, and babies, and yes, the sick and elderly, as they were made to keep pushing west in freezing temperatures with little or no food? These were my people, and this was our land. There was a time when we enjoyed freedom and were able to hunt buffalo and gather the foods and sacred medicines. We were able to fish, and we enjoyed the clean, clear water. My people were generous. We shared everything we had, including the knowledge of how to survive the long, harsh winters or the hot, humid summers. We were appreciative of the gifts from our Creator and remembered to give thanks on a daily basis. We had ceremonies and special dances that were a celebration of life. With the coming of foreigners to our shores, life as we knew it, would change drastically. Individual ownership was foreign to my people. Fences? Unheard of back then. We were a communal people, and we took care of each other. Our grandparents weren't isolated from us. They were the wisdom keepers and storytellers and were an important link in our families. The babies, they were and are our future. Look at the brilliant young people who put themselves at risk, fighting to keep our water and environment clean and safe for the generations yet to come. They're willing to confront the giant multinational corporations by educating the general public of the devastation being caused. I smile with hope when I think of them. They're fearless, 
and ready to speak the truth to all who are willing to listen. We also remember our brothers and sisters of Bolivia who are rioting in support of the first indigenous president, Evo Morales. His commitment to the people, the land, their resources, and protection against corruption is commendable. We recognize and identify with that struggle so well. So today, I thank all the people who are willing to have an open mind, those who are willing to accept the responsibility of planning for seven generations ahead, those who remember the sacrifices made by our ancestors so we can continue to speak our own language, practice our own way of thankfulness in our own skin, and that we always acknowledge and respect the indigenous lineage that we carry. For those of you who are thankful, you have enough food to feed your families. Please give to those who aren't as fortunate. If you're warm and have a comfortable shelter to live in, please give to those who are cold and homeless. If you see someone hurting and in need of a kind word or two, be that person who steps forward and lends a hand. And especially when you see injustice anywhere, please be brave enough to speak up to confront it. I want to thank all those who are kind enough to remember me and my family in your thoughts and prayers. Thank you for continuing to support and believe in me. There isn't a minute in any day that passes without me hoping that this will be the day I will be granted freedom. I long for the day when I can smell clean, fresh air, when I can feel a gentle breeze in my hair, witness the clouds as their movement hides the sun, and when the moon shines the light on the path to the sacred Inipi, that would truly be a day I could call a day of thanksgiving. Thank you for listening. My spirit is there with you, Doksha. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, you have been listening to the words of Leonard Peltier. It has been my pleasure to share them with you. This is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And again, that was political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal reading a 2019 Thanksgiving address from political prisoner Leonard Peltier. And uh, people, of course, can check out all of Mumia's uh, commentaries on prisonradio.org and highly encourage people to go to whoisleonardpeltier.info to find out more about his case. And, you know, Jackie, listening to Leonard talk about the things that he's looking forward to in freedom, you know, smelling the air and things like that. I mean, it just reminds me of, I think, a lot of things that we take for granted. And it, it sort of compounds to me the, the injustice of the fact that Leonard has, you know, been locked up for over 40 years at this point. And then when you talk about uh, how he described the uh, uh, the reality of the Thanksgiving story and what came behind it, you know, a, a genocide, displacement, 
cultural dispossession. I mean, this story, which is really a fairy tale that we're all told uh, in this country as children, uh, uh, this uh, uh, creation myth, if you will, of the country that became the United States. Of course, like so much uh, national mythology is actually in place to whitewash the uh, uh, atrocities, the horrors that were faced by indigenous people uh, when the European came to this hemisphere. And so we, we should always remember that uh, genocide, slavery, white supremacy, all of these things are crucial to the development of the capitalist system and to the development of what became the United States of America. So, Jackie, not only do I think we need to remember Leonard Peltier in our conversations about political prisoner uh, prisoners, but we have to situate him, I think, within this centuries-long-running uh, uh, campaign of terror and genocide against the uh, indigenous people of this land, without which the U.S. Uh, wouldn't even exist. Yeah, Sean, and the fact that, you know, this message was uh, delivered uh, during the, the Thanksgiving season here in this country is equally as important when it was delivered. And why? Because the, the very creation of this Thanksgiving myth uh, that the holiday is, surrounds and, and is founded upon is really central to the erasure of those very issues, the genocide, the theft of land, uh, the relegation of what was left of the indigenous people to, you know, sh shadows, the, the shadow of the development of this country and, and the gross capitalist uh, excesses uh, that also deprived those very people of their way of life and health and their own uh, uh, self-determination and prosperity. So in remembering not just uh, that history uh, of of the uh, foundation story or the origin story of the United States, we're also, you know, not uh, forgetting uh, these issues that Leonard Peltier raises. We're also continuing to dismantle this very mythos of uh, American exceptionalism, this United States of the, as this shining city on the hill, the this beacon of democracy. It cannot be, Sean, a beacon of democracy if the country itself was built on the very foundations of the refusal, the outright obliteration of human rights of other people. So we have to, as we're tearing this wall of misinformation and American mythology, down, remembering the political prisoners who have been thrown away because they pose a threat to that mythology, right? Their very existence and the things that they are fighting for, for all of us, we have to take from those ashes and build upon what people like Leonard Peltier are remembering so that we never get to a point again that we forget what we are fighting against. Absolutely. And again, want to encourage people to check out who is Leonard Peltier info free Leonard Peltier and all political prisoners. We're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about right-wing political violence inside Bolivia. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Camila Escalante, reporter and founding editor of Calcitune News. Camila, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. And uh, Camila, this past weekend, the headquarters of the Single Trade Union Federation of Peasant Workers of Santa Cruz had their headquarters burned down in what's being described as an act of terrorism. Uh, Franklin Vargas, one of the union's leaders, uh, told Bolivian state media, quote, it was a criminal attack that they launched on our federation. We denounced this act of terrorism at the national and international level. And uh, this seems to be a part of a recent slew uh, of attacks that we've been seeing in uh, Bolivia that appear to be motivated by uh, some of those who are responsible for the 2019 coup, which uh, forced uh, the recently reelected leader Evo Morales into exile. And so I was hoping you could help us understand, Camila, uh, just what's going on uh, with this uh, recent slew of different attacks and uh, what's really the motivation here. Right. Well, there's a lot to cover. But as you said, Friday was day 20, the 21st day, day 21 of this lockout, which is really a, a boss's lockout, which was called and organized by the Santa Cruz Civic Committee, which is an organization in Santa Cruz that really is like an organization that opposes the real unions and the real campesino organizations and the indigenous organizations. It has a character, a makeup of largely middle class people, Euro- European descendant people. People, and that's, of course, not just what they look like and what they are, but it really is how they identify and see themselves as being different racially from the makeup of the rest of the country, which is largely uh, majority indigenous, indigenous descendant. And these people uh, have decided to wage some sort of a destabilization attempt, as we've seen prior, um, and try to cause chaos in the Department of Santa Cruz that the right wing really does have uh, a lot of control over. It has a right wing uh, governor. And they decided to, at this time, uh, organize around and you know create havoc around the issue of the census. It's specifically about the census this time, but on many other occasions, they've tried to raise other issues, kind of like identity issues. They've tried to create destabilization in La Paz, which is really the center of government, from Santa Cruz because that's their stronghold. And they've tried to bring in other regions of the country into their destabilization and coup attempts. But it can be often difficult because the MAS has a majority, obviously won with 55.1% of the vote in these last presidential elections two years ago, in which Luis Arce took power after the coup. So they're mobilizing around this issue of the census, and a lot of the people who are directing it are the Santa Cruz elites, the large landowners, the oligarchy. It's a very um, large department, and it's very wealthy. It's very populated. And so they stand to Uh, receive a little bit more funding in the next census because their population has grown. And that's the issue they're dealing with right now. So there's been a lot of 
because of their lockouts that have taken place. They've placed roadblocks around the city and they're preventing people from going to work and have effectively largely paralyzed economic activity. This is still a country that is historically um, underdeveloped. Even after the movement towards socialism, a lot of work is informal work, and a lot of people have to go to work every day to be able to make ends meet, to be able to provide for their families. And so the poorest sectors of the country, the poorest sectors of Santa Cruz, have absolutely rejected the strike. What they call a strike, it's a lockout, really. Um, it's you know top down. It really has nothing to do with organized worker sectors that have called this. And so the indigenous and campesino um, organizations, as well as uh, just poor people generally and in certain neighborhoods, have been rejected that lockout and they've been rejecting the roadblocks. They've been trying to, first of all, prevent roadblocks from being put in place so they can go ahead and work. And they've been lifting some of the roadblocks that have been there. This has resulted in a lot of violent confrontation for those 21 days. But 21 was a significant day for the right wing because in 2019, they protested for three weeks before they um, effectively overthrew Evo Morales and he had to flee the country to Mexico in exile to protect his own life. So they were really hoping something would happen there. What really happened was the confrontations, you know, just turned to a situation of just one wave violence. It really was a situation where, as you said, they attacked the headquarters of the Indigenous Campesino uh, Union Federation building, but also the COD, which is the Departmental uh, Workers Federation, which is a separate one. They also attacked the INE, the National Statistics Institute building, which is actually the building that's supposed to be carrying out the census, the census that they're calling for. So they're attacking public uh, institutions, government buildings, as well as private property. Um, and just uh, there have also been a number of racially motivated attacks. It's very obvious in the kind of uh, things that they're saying when these confrontations take place, that there's that sort of division, that there's this hostility towards Indigenous people, not only in Santa Cruz, but Indigenous people in other sides, parts of the country, such as the Aymaras, where we are here in La Paz. There's a huge hostility. And in Santa Cruz, you know, this also, not only does it remind us of 2019 in the coup, but the coup attempts against Evo Morales in 2009 that were largely um, a push for separatism from Santa Cruz. Um, and so, you know, these people don't even want to be a part of the country. They want not only to overthrow uh, the, the central government, but they also you know, it has separatist tones. And it's important to say that the reason why we're seeing the sort of chaos and violence, which is largely far right um, and fascist sectors, is because these people who participated in the 2019 coup are living in impunity. They did not actually face any criminal charges and have not been imprisoned since 2019, despite not only calls within the country from the victims of the repression, of the torture, of the violence of 2019, but calls calls from the exterior to dismantle the parastate organizations that are linked with the far-right politicians in this country. Yeah, and one of those people, Camila, is someone named Luis Fernando Camacho. Who is he uh, currently, and what role did he play uh, in the previous Añez dictatorship? Well, in 2020, when... Uh, when Bolivia returned to democracy following those tw those October 2020 elections in which Luis Arce and the MAS returned to power, some sort of a process began very slowly of seeking justice for the crimes of the coup. 
Luis Fernando Camacho was, in fact, a coup leader. He's someone who organized protests in Santa Cruz, and he collaborated with Janine Añez, who was the coup dictator, but she was actually from the Department of Beni. They collaborated with Carlos Mesa, who was another presidential candidate at the time. He's from La Paz and some of the right wing leaders in Cochabamba. These are some main strategic uh, parts of the country that had to come together for this coup to to uh, to be executed. But Luis Fernando Camacho, because he didn't play a central role in the actual coup regime. They actually, he was a very close ally to Janine Añez in the beginning, and they actually, he and his sectors from Santa Cruz were able to appoint certain people into her government, her de facto government during the coup, but they had a falling out. So because of that, um, I think it, I guess this is how, how the justice has seen it. It was very difficult to to prosecute him for the things that he was involved in. And what happened is we went to regional elections here in Bolivia in, 2000, in 2021 in March, and he is a very popular figure in Santa Cruz, his home department, and he was able to win, uh, run as a gov- gubernatorial candidate, and he won. This is a huge problem because once, he, once, he, once he's governor, it's very difficult politically, and the optics would be very bad for the central government and the justice um, and the prosecutors to to go after him, they should have, uh, you know, what a lot of victims associations in this country have said is that they should have prosecuted for his leading role in trying to subvert the government in treason and acts of terrorism and everything else under the political constitution of the state in those months after the mass took power, but before he was able to become governor of Santa Cruz. Now he controls all of the institutions and the budget of this massive, wealthy department of the country and largely the city, the capital. Um, And so it's been very difficult because we know that that Santa Cruz Civic Committee, well, we have the governorship and then we also have the Santa Cruz Civic Committee, which um, is also funding some of the parastate groups in other parts of the country, including the Resistencia Juvenil Cochala, which is the main parastate group that acted during the tortures and the violence that took place in Cochabamba during the coup. So it's this whole operation, and there's a lot of money involved in it because all of the actors that are leading uh, these elite groups are, you know, come from the traditional landholding class of Santa Cruz. And so it's going to be very difficult for them to now go after these people. But these have been the calls from the people, again, like I said, who were victims of the tortures and of the violence and the persecution in 2019. We just heard today at the National Assembly, you know, a lot of these uh uh, a lot of the mass Congress people and the Victims Association, they've been giving press conferences, and they have pointed to the fact that these different uh, associations in Santa Cruz that are aligned with this right-wing uh, governor, uh, they do identify as different from the rest of the country, and they want to, uh, you know, the crimes that they've committed, the sort of violence, has repeatedly had this inherently racist character to it, and that just on those grounds alone— uh, that they should be investigated. A lot of the crimes that were committed are not receiving international attentions and they amount to uh, human rights violations, including a rape that took place at one of the, the road blockades in Santa Cruz, including people being nearly decapitated by wire that's being strung across the roads, including the use of explosive devices and the use of dynamite at these road blockades. And so it's extremely dangerous and we've become almost desensitized to it because we've seen ongoing right-wing violence for essentially three years now. 
Yeah, and you know, you, you noted something a moment ago, Camila, that, that I think uh, is worth reiterating in terms of how um, these uh, uh, coup mongers are tied to the traditional land-owning classes inside Bolivia. And uh, also when you talk about uh, the racist character of some of these attacks, well, I feel like the, the class and racial character of uh, uh, this whole situation, I think, plays an important role, particularly when we talk about um, during uh, the time of the Janine Añez, a U.S.-backed dictatorship and, you know, uh, the violent, you know, massacres that happened amongst, uh, uh, you know, the, the indigenous populations of Bolivia and things like this. And it makes me wonder, I mean, what, what does this uh, say, you think, about the state of, uh, of the right in Bolivia? I mean, uh, do you think that this shows that uh, they're in a position of particular strength? I mean, uh, I was seeing some reporting from Castro News about how, you know, they seem to be employing, you know, football hooligans and people like this to carry out uh, some of this violence as well. And I mean, do you think that uh, uh, the, the the right in Bolivia is trying to stage basically another uh, search for power uh, uh, following uh, the return to democracy inside the country? Well, one of the claims of the right has been, um, you know, when they go to those international human rights organizations, largely the ones based in Washington, when they go to the European Union or their European allies or the continental far right, the right wing in Bolivia tries to say that they are being suppressed on the basis of being minorities. And what do they mean? I mean, they say that uh, that they're being suppressed by the majority of Bolivians. And the majority of Bolivians they're talking about is largely the people who are indigenous of all sorts of different nationalities and communities around the country. The majority they're talking about is the campesinos who don't live in cities, who still live in rural areas and have traditional practices of farming, of fishing, of uh, you know, their way of life that is very much not, um, you know, what you see in the capitals of Latin America, for example. This is These are the people who they say are suppressing their small European minority. And tomorrow marks the three-year anniversary of the Wayani Sacaba massacre that took place in a municipality just outside of the city of Cochabamba. This was the first massacre of the coup regime. It took place on the 15th of November of 2019, and police and military went in to try to disband a roadblock of campesinos, largely from the six federations of the Tropico of Cochabamba. This is hundreds of thousands of people um, who are all a member of this massive union of coca growers in the Tropico of Cochabamba. They had come to the outskirts of Cochabamba to block the area because they didn't want police and military entering during the coup. They wanted to protect themselves from the persecution and the mass arrests. And they were protesting against the coup and the rupture of constitutional order that was against them. It was a coup against the people, but against their elected leader, Evo Morales, as well. And because of that, this these executions and this these, this massacre was ordered against them in which uh, 10 or 11 people were killed in this instance. You know, this was a use of these uh, collaborating, you know, corrupt military uh, commanders and police commanders by the coup regime in the very first days 
of this of this coup against the people. And this is something that they've still yet to get justice for. But it's very clear who were the victims during the coup. It was indigenous people who speak Quechua, who don't even speak Spanish. And these are the people who really have been uh, the victims of this sort of uh, racist violence. It's not the small minority of people who are extremely wealthy in places like Santa Cruz or Beni, who, by the way, are also uh, involved in the international uh drug trafficking networks and, you know, with their collaborators who are drug dealers in Brazil and Colombia and other countries, the real victims here are part of the actual majority of indigenous people. And that needs to be made made clear internationally as well. Um, they also try to make this claim that uh, that the government is, you know, pitted against them and the media works on behalf of the government. And what I would say is that, you know, most of the media in this country has been very much in favor of the coup and is privately owned pro-coup media. So it's been very difficult to uh, to get out information, even now that the government is power that is accurate and transparent and correct and not manipulated by these powerful right wing sectors but who really do only represent the minority. You know, and what does it mean for uh, the people of Bolivia in the face of this right wing violence? What how will this impact uh, the uh, new administration and the efforts to recover from uh, the previous uh, right wing dictatorship and to establish uh, the kind of policies that people voted for in this last election? Well, I think the central government in La Paz has to just continue on pushing through their uh, economic rep- recovery policies, their policies of import uh, substitution industrialization, their policies of good, uh, well, rebuilding good, strong diplomatic relations with neighboring countries, with countries overseas, uh, for the benefit of all Bolivians. And this has to take place while the country is essentially under siege. But, you know, there are ruptures within the right wing, uh, even with this uh, lockout that's going on in, in Santa Cruz. They were not supported by all of the sectors that supported the right in the election that brought them to power in Santa Cruz to begin with. And there have been many people, individuals, figures with, within their own ranks that have opposed it. So it's not going to be easy for them. And, of course, what they're trying to do is, again, destabilize from one corner of the country. With that, they're looking to other parts of the country where they know there is a bit of a stronger opposition, such as the Department of Beni, where Janine Añez was from, and and trying to bring those different sectors onto their cause. But it's been very difficult because, you know, they're using these racial undertones of attacking different people from different parts of the country. Um, And so that's not going to really bring the right wing together. At the end of the day, they do, you know, they do make up the minority of the country. And the government knows this. They know that any sort of coup situation is not possible right now. It's simply not going to happen. But unfortunately, even within that, we're still able to see, you know, chaos, chaos and destabilization. And even within those first 21 days of their actions in Santa Cruz, it took a massive toll on the Santa Cruz economy, which in turn hurts the rest of the country. And, you know, the the government has this basically constant ongoing campaign of economic recovery. It's why the approval has been so strong of the mass government, both in Evo's previous terms and now under Luis Arce. And so if they're able to harm, you know, the econ- economic growth 
of this country. That could be really harmful in the long run. But I think the government is determined to bring people together to try to unite not only the mass and the sectors that brought them to power, but also to try to dialogue with the different uh, factions of the right wing that might be breaking off from these far right sectors. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Camila, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, November 14th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear our shows at Sputnik Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Averum. Artist, author, independent journalist, and host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, which you can listen to both as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to join you, Sean and Jackie. Absolutely. And uh, Esther, as the dust continues to settle uh, from this year's uh, midterms, at least for the moment, I wanted to take a, a, a look at uh, some of uh, the specific results that have happened in the aftermath and <laughs> what uh, it may imply for a politics here in the U.S. I want to start with um, uh, the New York Democratic Party chair, Jay Jacobs, who uh, is taking no responsibility for uh, how they fared in that state 
during the uh, uh, midterms, which uh, is important because this is uh, something that could contribute to Republicans retaking the House. Uh, And he told city and state, quote, I'm not going to take responsibility for or blame, if you will, for losses that we had here, Uh, you know, uh, deciding instead to blame progressives. And, uh, you know, there have there's been some consternation about this inside the party, certainly within uh, uh, New York State. Um, Reportedly, uh, Kathy Hochul, who recently won reelection as governor, um, has said that she has no plans to uh, uh, replace Jacobs. And, you know, uh, Jacobs has a history for going after progressives within the uh, uh, Democratic Party. I mean, back in 2019, after uh, he was appointed to the chair of the state party by then Governor Andrew Cuomo, um, uh, uh, Jacob uh, in- Jacobs engaged this uh, attempt uh, basically to uh, sideline progressives in a couple of ways. I mean, on the one hand, he pushed a ban on something called fusion voting, which basically allows people from different parties to nominate the same candidate. He also uh, uh, endeavored to raise the threshold for parties to appear on the ballot in the state in uh, what seems to be an attempt to keep the working Families Party off of it. Of course, a WFP, a kind of a mainstream, a progressive party, but certainly to the left of the Democrats. And so just sort of wondering how you're considering uh, uh, these kinds of developments, uh, uh, Esther. Certainly it, it's it's been 100 percent clear that the Democratic Party establishment is more than willing to attack uh, the progressives uh, uh, within it. But, I mean, rarely are they as uh, uh, open about it, I think, as uh, Jay Jacobs. So just uh, wondering how you're considering it all. Well, in the case of Jay Jacobs, I just think that this is this inside look at the kind of like the ugly, <laughs> the, you know, the ugly sausage making in the Democratic Party. Rarely do we get such a clear picture of how the party has openly worked against progressives, and rarely do we have a particular person to point to in terms of a series of actions that you mentioned where he has, like you said, tried to work against fusion voting, uh, also work against um, uh, particular candidates. And I think that on that laundry list includes his vicious attack on uh, the candidate who was a, uh, a candidate for Buffalo mayor, where he uh, compared her to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, I'm speaking of uh, Jacobs, um, I think India Jake, uh, no, I'm sorry. India Walton? India Walton. India Walton running for mayor of Buffalo. Oh, that was him that said that. Wow. Yeah, and because was a, she was a self-declared socialist, and ran openly as a socialist uh, in her campaign. He compared her to the Ku Klux Klan. So he had to apologize after it. But this is a, this is one of those apologies that really don't matter afterward. You know, it's kind of said with, with, with tongue in cheek almost, right? So, so this, is a, this is really an ugly situation. And uh, there are calls for him to resign from people like AOC and people who have um, some clout within the Democratic Party and and certainly in New York state politics. And so by him, you know, trying to deflect all that blame and 
and in turn blame progressives is really ridiculous. So, you know, we'll see what happens, but I hope that there is some, some type of, of, you know, reactions that he has to pay some kind of cost that uh, in the weighing of what happened in New York, I think it's going to come down to whether progressives are going to have more of a say in electoral politics than, say, like the police unions and other people who are getting behind these these right-wing and, and in some cases, far-right candidates. You know, um, I think that, you know, there was an example of uh, a campaign truck with New Jersey tags going through a New York neighborhood, you know, with anti, with messages attacking a progressive candidate. So you see that, that this is often outside money. And then we can also relate that to um, the role of APAC in this election, uh, funding far-right candidates, not only in New York, but also throughout the country, including attacking Summer Lee, who did win her seat in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned uh, that Summer Lee won her seat in Pennsylvania because she is the first black woman elected to Congress from Pennsylvania. And Summer Lee is uh, one of those progressives that the Democratic Party uh, wishes would go away. But here she is uh, uh, in uh, Congress now elected from Pennsylvania. So, I mean, since uh, Governor uh, Holchel said that she's not going to uh, ask for this person's resignation who you know as you as you pointed out compared progressives or a progressive a socialist to the Ku Klux Klan what does this say about the Democratic Party in New York in particular but the the Democratic Party in general when there are forces within the party that will demonize the left flank of the party even worse than I think Republicans do. I mean, anytime you've got a Democrat that will beat Republicans to the comparing to the Klan punch, I, I just I don't know that there is a better example than this right now of the Democratic Party quite literally being the other side of the same coin as the Republican Party. And and where does that leave progressives who continually think that there is some utility in uh, the strategy of changing this party from the inside, Esther? Jackie, to tell you the truth, all I can really, what I keep coming back to in this election is the, it's at least ironic um, at the most is, very telling that you have a party, uh, you have a president, Joe Biden, that is literally funding Nazis, neo-Nazis in Ukraine, okay? And they are talking about how they just saved democracy, okay? You have a party that is funding a war, a proxy war against Russia, pouring tens of billions of dollars into this war while they can't uh, muster the funds to make sure Flint has clean water, that Jackson has clean water, that we ha- are on the road to um, uh, quality health care, universal health care for all, where they say that they will probably have to uh, cut funding for COVID care, that when that runs out, 
the next time it will have to run out. I mean, all kinds of things. I mean, I could go on and on. And so that's really where I'm at. I know I'm kind of jumping the shark a little bit, but uh, it's way past New York for me. It's way past this country. It's, it's really the fact that I'm looking at a party that is uh, trying to take credit for a win where they almost worked overtime to adopt the right-wing narratives and polls of the, of the uh, far-right pundits, where they couldn't even have enough uh, confidence in themselves to say, no, you know, we have the majority in this country. Um, we want to appeal to that 80% of the country that is in an urban area uh, that is not signed up for you know, uh, killing a woman's right to choose for, you know, possibly ending or cutting Social Security for um, interfering with uh, student loan forgiveness. No, we represent them. They couldn't even, uh, you know, just kind of lean on their supposed base and say, no, there's no red wave. You know, what kind of wave? What, what are you talking about? What kind of, you know, they couldn't even come back at the Republicans and these far right pundits to say, to say, no, you know, we, we don't agree with those polls. We don't agree with your narrative. We have our own narrative. And that's, I guess, because they don't really have one. They don't really have one. Um, as you said, they're just kind of the other side of the same party. And they're just working for the ruling elite in this country. You know, they couldn't even come out and, and attack uh, the, uh, they did come out and use the issue of abortion, but they couldn't even come out and say, you know, look, this party is trying to take away your Social Security. They're trying to take away your Medicare. They're trying to, if they get back in, you know, they're, they're going to try to kill your student loan forgiveness. They couldn't do any of those things because they're only half-heartedly endorsing those things themselves. So that's where I am. I'm just, I'm just looking at this and watching these people take credit, you know, the morning after or the week after and realizing that, they weren't even on the ground funding these people like in Georgia or in Pennsylvania in some release case who really got the vote out, who really believed in these progressive candidates and got them over the hump. So it's, um, it, it's quite a mess. It's, it's a mess. And I'm just, I'm, I'm still processing all of this on also on veterans day, you know, cause you know, my, my father fought in world war two and I'm trying to understand how this country is um, in the same week of the election, you know, not dealing with the fact that so many of our fathers or our grandfathers fought in a war against Nazis, yet this country, by some trick where they're still fooling the population, not even letting people understand that. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the, the case of Summer Lee is particularly interesting to me because, you know, as I think you mentioned, Esther, there was a, a super PAC that was affiliated with uh, APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, where they spent over a million dollars trying to defeat Lee uh, in that uh, uh, district. And, you know, this this was called out by people like uh, Ilan Omar and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, with AOC uh, tweeting that APAC was working to, quote, working towards the, quote, further destabilization of a U.S. democracy. And Lee herself uh, sort of acknowledged this during her victory speech when she says, we're not going to let dark money and outside folks come into Western Pennsylvania and tell us what type of representation that we deserve because our community has been waiting 
far, far too long for this. And, you know, this is actually not the first time that we've seen APAC swoop in on a uh, uh, election last minute when it appears that uh, some uh, progressive person may win and try to dump a bunch of money into it to try to sway it uh, one way or the other. And, you know, there's a couple of uh, uh, things about this. I mean, number one, one thing that comes to mind, um, Esther, is the fact that, you know, the U.S. is a country that's always uh, you know, uh, blaming other countries for interfering in some way or the other, particularly with um, uh, uh, elections, whether it's Russia supposedly stealing elections or whether it's, you know, China supposedly stealing technology or stuff like that. But in truth, you know, we have groups like APAC that are literally working on behalf of a foreign government to sway elections in the United States but because Israel is important to the maintenance of U.S. world imperialism, they're allowed to operate and do these things and to blatantly interfere uh, without any pushback from uh, uh, that same government. You know what I mean? And so there's just an inherent uh, hypocrisy that is in there. And I think it just says a lot that uh, APAC feels the need to, to step in and to try to scuttle uh, any attempt by uh, uh, candidates whose platform even gestures towards uh, uh, helping out the masses of people in this country or wherever they find themselves. Uh, you know what I mean? And so for me, it's just a reminder of how, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> of how the Israel lobby writ large uh, works so hard, <coughs> excuse me, to sort of interfere in U.S. politics uh, and as such, I think shows uh, how important it is, like, you know, not only for, you know, pro-Palestinian uh, politics to be in that mix when we talk about uh, elections, but shows the kind of pushback uh, uh, people get from trying to do something decent, not even revolutionary. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, you know, this whole APEC uh, influence and the, them spending millions and millions of dollars it's, it really should concern all of us, especially since they're talking about saving democracy. They particularly went after not just Summer Lee, but many women of color, progressives all over throughout this country, pouring of millions of dollars often into campaigns to back election deniers, uh, people on the far right, uh, racist, homophobes, uh, and it, it seemed like there was no uh, no bets were off as long as they could they thought that they could count on that person for a vote in support of Israel. So we have to be very concerned about uh, this type of uh, often really white supremacist uh, uh, influence on the in the election. So it's not just a, a, about opposing progressives like Summer Lee. If you look at their pattern of support. They are backing these far-right uh, racists, uh, people who, um, uh, and also in the process, defeating candidates who are not just going to stick up for Palestinians, but p candidates who will uh, stick up for universal health care or better funding for our schools or funding our infrastructure in a way that helps people and not just these large corporations, you know, that candidates that want to support peace, that see the con connection between all these billions and tens of billions of dollars going into the military budget and not for uh, need, human needs here at home. So 
this kind of funding, it has a really far lasting impact. And if the Democrats are going to keep taking this dirty money or allowing this dirty money in the process of influencing their own campaigns and targeting their own people, then that means that somebody else we have, uh, there has to be some kind of outside influence to get in there and, and shine a light on this and somehow, you know, uh, raise our rights as American citizens, really, to not be targeted in a way that is very dangerous to all of us. I feel I feel personally in danger, right, by their ability to come into elections and to elect, you know, white supremacists, to to pour money into a system that will empower the far right here. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Esther Averum. And Esther, there's another uh, recent development here. Uh, it's quite noteworthy, I think, that I want to touch on. And that's the issue of this uh, Donald Trump-appointed judge in North Texas that uh, basically blocked uh, Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness uh, uh, policy. I was hoping you could break down uh, what's happening there and uh, what do you see as the ripple effects? Well, right now, it looks like the decision is keeping the student loan forgiveness from going going on. I think that there's an update on that today, right? So I'm looking at a story that's talking about a federal appeals court uh, blocking the Biden administration from moving ahead with its mass student debt cancellation program. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's saying that it's dealing another blow to the administration's plan after it was ruled unlawful by a federal judge in Texas last week. So this new three-judge panel, uh, it's this, this ruling is considered more of a a a blow to the program because it's saying that um, they're granting a preliminary injunction injunction against the plan, the entire plan. So I think they're trying to see if the, I don't really understand it really, but it's, it's like they're saying that the appeals court is citing the potential irreversible impact of allowing debt forgiveness to proceed now as compared to the lack of harm an injunction would presently impose. I don't know. Is that harm to the loan companies? <laughs> so we're having to have time to like look into this a little bit more, but it seems like the, the ruling today is having a, is, is further cementing a, a blockage of the program. Yeah. The wild thing about this ruling by this particular judge is 
really, and I think the argument that was made was based on not the the idea that harm was done to one of the two plaintiffs in the lawsuit that were brought by this bogus organization called the Job Creators Network Foundation, obviously one of these right-wing policy fronts that pretty much exists to, you know, file lawsuits on behalf of the GOP for exactly this kind of thing. Their argument was that two borrowers claimed uh, that they were harmed by the student loan program. Um, uh, was They were not eligible. One, one borrower was not eligible at all, and the other borrower was only eligible for um, a partial amount, not the full $20,000. So the argument in this case from the judge was basically came down to um, the Biden administration didn't give Congress uh, instructions to give specific power to the Department of Education to cancel, the, you know, this uh, these student loan uh, debts. And, and that's ridiculous because um, the Department of Education can cancel debt whenever they feel like it. They, they do it all the time. Um, right. the, the government cancels debt whenever they feel like it. They've done it before. They bailed out the banks. They bailed out the travel industry. They bailed out the, the cruise ship industry. Remember all that? All of those corporations that got all of that money to pay back loans and supposedly to keep people on payrolls? And people got laid off anyway, and those folks kept that money. So this just seems such a, and I'm not an attorney, but it just seems such a specious argument, especially when the the plaintiffs argued, uh, this Job Creators Network argued that their problem really was that there was no public comment, that the Biden administration did not allow a public comment on the student loan program before the program was implemented. So this Trump-appointed judge decides after this case was thrown out of other courts, all other challenges to this program uh, were thrown out except for this one. And of course, you know, the Biden administration is going to appeal and they're claiming, you know, we'll prevail in court. Uh, And at that point, when they do, we'll swiftly move to make sure that the over 26 million people at this point um, who have whose information the administration has, that they'll swiftly move for loan forgiveness. But for me, Esther, I think the problem is the fact that I am not an attorney. You are not an attorney. Sean Blackman, not an attorney. Fantastic voice, amazing organizer, but not an attorney. We figured out that the Biden administration knew doggone well there would be legal challenges to this program the way it was written and done because these people are attorneys. They do have legislative backgrounds. They could have avoided all of this entirely. And and even if they couldn't avoid the legal challenges, they could have at least stood on the principle of saying, you know what? I tried to deliver what I promised in my campaign uh, uh, promises and cancel all student loan debt. But see, the GOP wouldn't let us do it. At least If he had actually done what he'd promised or tried to do what he'd promised, Biden could have stood on that. But, oh, no, no, 
this is what we get, Esther. And I can't help but feel like this isn't something that I'm mad at the GOP for taking away from us. I feel like this is solely on the Biden administration. Well, I have to I have to really understand more about it. I just think that you're right in the sense that, you know, you just you just feel like, you know, they're not fighting hard enough. Right. <laughs> they're not fighting hard enough to stand for what they say they want. You know, you just even if you go down fighting, just at least go down swinging, you know, just say, you know, uh, let let us know that in addition to the Justice Department appealing these rulings that, you know, that there's something public said to uh, stand up for the right of people to have this forgiveness, just like all those millionaires and, and, and corporations received all that, you know, money under COVID. They did a really good job when they first announced it. They, they were ready with their, with their information about all those Republican lawmakers who had received in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even maybe more than a million dollars in COVID relief that they didn't have to pay back. What you call them um, forgiven loans, right? So they, they were ready in the beginning to, to point out the hypocrisy of these lawmakers, these people on the, on the right, the far right, who got all this money, but were trying to, uh, trying to uh, uh, prevent people from getting $10,000 or $20,000 in forgiveness. And in some cases, you know, I remember, you know, I don't have student loans now, but I remember how that was like a real like albatross around my neck. And, you know, just the idea that that could, that could be a life changer for so many people to not have to pay their student loan. Because if you don't have to pay that every month, maybe you could save and, and, you know, you can pay off some other bills or it can make your car payment easier or it can make your rent easier. Or if you have if, you, if you're trying to get a house that it can make that easier. All these things that just that small forgiveness and loan, you know, could make such a difference. And it's just so cruel and mean. And, you know, you don't really feel that the, the Biden administration is really pointing out continuing to point out how mean and petty it is. Yeah. And, you know, I was actually just thinking on this issue of student loan debt. And uh, like when when the Biden administration, you know, when it was first announced that they were considering some level of forgiveness, I think people forget the original number that people were pushing for was 50,000. And then that got cut down to twenty five thousand to now the ten thousand um, uh, that we are with right now, even though, you know, that's uh, uh, quite a bit less than the average debt that uh, most people have in this country. And so I, I tend to uh, agree with you, uh, uh, Esther, about, you know, what, what you're sort of laying out here. It's like when you talk about, you know, going down swinging. Well, that's for fighters. You know what I mean? And that's not something that the, the Democrats is certainly not um, uh, uh, Joe Biden is in the habit of doing. I mean, not for anything that would be a benefit to us anyway. You know what I mean? And so we, we consistently see this refusal to use the power, the bully pulpit of the president of the United States uh, to push uh, through or advocate for these things that are uh, broadly popular amongst the people, particularly when we all know that if 
if Biden, no matter what number uh, he would have put, if he if he if he put the number at a seven dollars and fifty cents, if he put it at two million dollars, there was going to be pushback from the Republicans no matter what the number was. And so, you know, I, I you know, if, if those of us out here understand that, then certainly those within uh, the administration and more broadly within the, the Democrats understand that, too. But yet and still, they still push for these pennies. And now here we are in a situation in states like Texas where folks won't even be able to get that. So I, I think it sort of shows a kind of realistic picture and a, a stark one, I think, about how. Politics in the United States, mainstream politics, I should say ruling class uh, politics and officials uh, continue to maneuver to really undermine the interest of poor, working and oppressed people in this country while trying to make it seem like they're doing something helpful. I mean, it, it almost seems like the Democrats do these little uh, token measures just, um, you know, as a as a uh, uh, justification in, in a sense or, you know, as a way to basically be able to say, well, look, we tried something. You know what I mean? It, it isn't in any way sufficient, but at least we quote, quote unquote tried it. And so, you know, when it comes time for vote again, we can point to this uh non-solution that we pushed here as reasons that you all should support us. You know what I mean? And so more and more, as time goes on, Esther, I think, uh, you know, when, when we look at the status of poor and working and oppressed people in this country and about how, uh, you know, a ruling class politics just contain uh, nothing for them, really, except a lot of broken promises. So, I mean, that tells me that what you said earlier about the importance of an outside independent force from not just the Democrats, but from the whole of the political mainstream establishment in this country is uh, just going to be so crucially important. Otherwise, uh, we'll just be in a position where we'll continue to be caught, uh, uh, thrown, not even crumbs at this point. It almost feels like they're just, just tossing dust up in the air and watching it slowly dissipate. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I you know, we are always like looking desperately for like a sane voice out there. You know, many of us thought that, you know, when we supported Bernie, Fan many of us supported Bernie Sanders in his run because it was somebody saying something that sounded sane, that really addressed, you know, uh, working class issues, uh, wages, housing, health care, all these things that are bread and butter issues uh, for Americans and, you know, really people all over the world, right? But, you know, we've seen our hopes rise and fade with him because what happens is that we see that these issues are inextricably linked to what's happening abroad. And if, if the leaders who we think are progressive uh, can't come out and, and show that they're also anti-imperialists, that they can't show that that they understand the link between what happens at home and what happens abroad, we're, we're always disappointed, you know, even in someone like that. And I think that he's been, as he went around the country, he's been confronted by people by saying, you know, like, you know, you know, Bernie, you know, why did you, why did you not uh, support the letter? Why did you go back on supporting the letter about, you know, asking for negotiations, you know, in this proxy war in Ukraine. And, you know, even when we talk about the more progressives coming into Congress, you know, and the progressive caucus expanding its ranks, you know, what does that mean if they had to go back on their letter, just asking for negotiations, asking for 
peace and something that makes sense, you know. And it's it's, it's so discouraging because we kind of feel like uh, even though people are celebrating this, uh, you know, not having the red wave uh, in the election, you kind of wonder, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean in the end if we have more progressives, people who are who have that label and want to call themselves progressive, but at the same time, they can't stand up for what makes sense. You know, even if it's to say, you know, we, we don't want nuclear war. We don't want to maneuver ourselves into a situation where we are spending tens of billions of dollars to foment war and to possibly, you know, trigger some type of event that could, you know, just end the planet, period. So, you know, I, I you know, we, we want to do more than just watch. You know, we're all organizers. We're all working, you know, to, you know, you know, not only in our communities, but, you know, in in a sense for the world. But um, I'm just saying that I I, I don't want to just say I'm, I'm watching. I want to feel like I'm, you know, doing something, even if it's just, you know, talking about these issues with you and doing my show and, you know, trying to get real information out to people because, you know, part of this is, is their ability to keep so many people in the dark and ignorant. Yeah. And, you know, Esther, I think this comes right back to what you alluded to um, and what we always talk about on this show, organizing the need for bottom up on the ground, grassroots organizing. But what does that look like among our family and friends? I'm not talking about the people who always come to our PE sessions and, you know, the the book talks and the protests and the kind of what does this organizing look like with all of our friends who just, you know, wore out all of their free time with this get out the vote effort for the, the do nothing Democrats in the midterm? How do we get those tired, disillusioned people? Because they are. Um, into our organizing orbit and get them energized for the socialist reconstruction that we know we need, but that we are the only ones who are going to make come about? Well, you know, I think that more and more people are recognizing precisely what you say. And in, in a way, we can be heartened by the uh, outcome of the election, not because certain numbers of Democrats were elected, but because time and time again, especially in the abortion uh, referenda, uh, people voted for freedom. People voted for uh, human rights. And uh, also, when you look at the, the people who struck down the, the slavery exception in the 13th Amendment in their state constitutions, um, there are, you know, it, it's almost like embracing the fact that we are the majority. I think that uh, 80%, depending on how, what figures you look at, more than 70%, more than 80% of Americans live in urban areas where we know we have a diverse, young, I think increasingly progressive uh, electorate. And people are looking for answers and solutions. People aren't stupid. And that's one thing that I, I take away from the election. People aren't stupid. They're not trying to elect people who are going to go in and, and, and kill their right to reproductive choice and take away their Social Security and take away their, their Medicare and, and support this stripping away of student loan forgiveness. And so I'm heartened by that. And, and you know, in terms of, like, our family and our friends, I think that, you know, 
talking to them and bringing them into, I, I've gotten, a, had a lot of success at just talking to people and, and just kind of repeating the facts because we kind of live in this like kind of fact free media universe, right? Where people are hearing about uh, supposed crime and supposed inflation that has nothing to do with corporate profiteering. They're hearing about, um, you know, things that just constantly blame black and brown and urban people for, for problems that are really caused by the, we know, caused by this capitalist system. And so when we can constantly point out the, the corporate profiteering, the ways that groups like APAC and these well-funded groups from, you know, billionaire-funded groups are basically, you know, having their way in our elections. When we can really uh, uh, point out the link between uh, the need for what we know is a socialist reconstruction and uh, and what we don't have right now, I think that that we just have to keep we have to keep talking to people. We have to keep um, organizing and creating systems so that people can come in and believe that they can make a difference. Because right now they're constantly being discouraged that that their vote and the way what they want doesn't matter. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Esther Averum is here. And Esther, I wanted to pick up on a point that you made just before we went to break about what the American electorate really said uh, uh, through these midterms. Because I tend to agree uh, that not only uh, was the program of the far right rejected, but I also feel like it was shown that uh, the electorate is more progressive. It, it is to the left of the mainstream uh, following their support for things that not even uh, the Democrats would fight for, you know, namely things like abortion and, and things like this. And I mean, that also makes me think about the uh, the issue of real peace, uh, particularly with um, the issue of the ongoing proxy war in Ukraine, which you uh, mentioned also. And I thought it was really interesting when we saw uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. I mean, this is America's uh, 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 top general, if you will, uh, reportedly recently has been really trying to lead a push within the administration to try to push for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine as it pertains to this war. And obviously, there are divisions within the Biden administration as it pertains 
to the question of Ukraine. Now, of course, we saw that uh, a letter by the Progressive Caucus, I mean, just get, you know, smacked down swiftly and, uh, uh, you know, uh, pointedly. And, you know, they all ran away from that, you know, like I say, like like rats jumping off of a, a sinking ship. But even still, I mean, the fact that we're seeing uh, some of these divisions within elements of uh, the upper echelon of the ruling class, particularly on the question of Ukraine, I think is rather noteworthy. And if we're wise, it seems to me that the anti-imperialist movement and the real peace movement has to exploit some of these ructions that are happening within the uh, uh, ruling class to really push for peace. And that's why I think it's a perfect time to have an event uh, like will be taking place this Saturday in New York at the People's Forum entitled The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine, Negotiations Yes, Escalations No. It will be both an in-person and a virtual event. And it features some uh, friends of ours, including uh, Eugene Pregier, Vijay Prashad, Brian Becker, Claudia De La Cruz, Medea Benjamin. Also in attendance will be uh, Jill Stein, a former uh, uh, presidential nominee of the Green Party and, you know, friend of the show, Jamu Baraka was her vice presidential uh, uh, candidate and Jeremy Corbyn, of course, a UK member of parliament known for his anti-war and uh, pro-peace stances. And he was, you know, basically almost hounded uh, uh, out of uh, a leadership in uh, UK politics as a result of uh, those politics. You know what I mean? And so I feel like it's so important, not only that we uh, uh, have events like this, but continue, uh, Esther, to be unashamed in our calls for peace. Because there's so much pressure coming from the highest levels of the most powerful governments on earth to try to silence anyone who contradicts the Washington consensus on the war in Ukraine. But given what we know the potential is for a nuclear war and what that would mean for humanity and really life on earth uh, uh, as we know it, then I feel like it's our duty, really it's our responsibility to continue to take this a consistent and principled stance of peace even as uh, uh, these hegemonic powers like the U.S. continue to try to push us into oblivion. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to uh, participating, you know, in the conference on Saturday you know, probably virtually or however I can participate. And I think that, you know, you're right. I mean, uh, just the idea of people coming together to show that there is solidarity for this issue, because you're right, the way the the corporate media, the way these elected lawmakers have um, run away from uh, putting forth ideas about peace and negotiation, it's easy for people to think that, uh, you know, this is this cannot be spoken about. And the way that the United States allows is allowing critics of the war to be even targeted by Ukraine, put on their so-called, you know, kill list or and threatened in, by this official website and and everything, you know, run by Ukraine. This is very this is very outrageous. And we can't allow this. And I don't hear any elected official coming to the defense of 
of many people who we know, who, friends of the show, our shows, who are, are journalists and writers and thinkers or, or activists who are uh, being targeted constantly by the uh, Zelensky regime, and which is also uh, trying to um, uh, have words about this event on Saturday. So, you know, we have to stand firm as Americans where we have uh, a First Amendment, and um, we have a First Amendment for a reason, and the United States, these uh, so-called elected leaders, they need to step up because it's not just a danger to us, it's a danger to them too, you know, and uh, these these, uh, far-right people who we are empowering in Ukraine, they don't think twice about, you know, stepping, you know, stepping to us and you know, stepping to Americans who are peace activists and and basically trying to disrupt what is uh, a movement to save, you know, uh, humanity in a way. You know, when we call for peace, we're not just talking about this oversized, bloated military budget that's taking away money from our, our homes here, our home here, but we're talking about ending an escalation process that can only go one way toward destruction. So, you know, I advise uh, any elected official, anybody in power, any type of public official that is listening to us, you know, to tune in on Saturday and stand up and, you know, be one in the number of people who are calling for sanity and truth as opposed to this continuation of, of war and um, escalation to it, it can't lead to any anything good. Yeah, definitely. And just so folks know what um, Esther's talking about when she talks about uh, uh, the Zelensky government uh, targeting this event on Friday, it's true that um, the Zelensky administration has gone after Jeremy Corbyn specifically for taking part in this uh, uh, event, you know, calling him one of Putin's useful idiots and things like this. Matter of fact, uh, Dasha... Zarivna, who's a senior Ukrainian presidential uh, advisor, told the Daily Mail, quote, once again, Jeremy Corbyn finds himself cozying up to known associates of Vladimir Putin and other useful idiots manipulated by the Kremlin. And so, you know, this actually reminds me of something that uh, Michael Parenti used to say a lot in his uh, presentation when he would say, you know, don't believe people when they say, you know, oh, they don't. They don't care what you think. They don't care what you do and things like that. And and this just sort of reminds me of that. And so here you are, uh, the president of a country engaged in an out and out war. And uh, you're concerned about uh, a a peace event happening in uh, the United States. And so it it, I think just sort of uh, clues us in on, uh, you know, just how dangerous the idea of peace is to the interest of imperialism and its puppets like the Zelensky government in the in Ukraine. Uh, Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, and I'm, gl- I'm glad that, you know, this uh, issue with uh, Corbyn being accused by Zelensky and his regime of being a useful 
uh, uh, idiot uh, of Putin because, you know, Esther, remember that Ilan Omar said that we anti-war activists were a disgrace to the anti-war movement, to anti-war activism, because we're we're calling for peace. And that's that's a horrible plot that is cooked up by the Kremlin, this idea of, you know, not wanting nuclear war. And I just I just can't help but keep pointing out that with elected officials like these who are supposed to be uh, the left wing of the party, they're supposed to be pushing the Democratic Party left. If they can't even stand up against the growing specter of nuclear annihilation for the entire planet, then honestly, as for Esther, they're not useful at all to anyone. Right. Right. You know, I didn't I didn't know about that. That's uh, that is very disheartening to me right now, um, because you want to you want to give them a chance. You want to feel like they are educated. But time and time again, um, this uh, Omar in particular disappoints me because, because he's not educated on the issues. And um, I you know, we, we want to maybe have a teach in for them, but I don't even know if. <laughs> any good maybe they'll just sit there with their hands over their ears but you know for any uh any elected official that has resources to really understand the history to really inform themselves and educate themselves about the issues to still come out and and kind of run this really tired democratic party line that's about putin it's always about putin 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 then that means that they're not educated so uh like I said, I think earlier, I am very concerned about uh, this continued uh, influence of the far right uh, forces, not only in this country, but across uh, across the ocean, you know, having feeling like they have some say about uh, my ability, the ability of people who look like me in my community or throughout this country to be free of, of far right her harassment, um, threats. And, um, you know, we, we also can't, you know, dissociate, you know, the way that they attack Corbin for standing up for the Palestinian people. So whether it's coming from Israel and the far right in Israel, or whether it's coming from the far right in Ukraine, you know, we have to let these elected officials know that, um, we are not going to be cowed by, the same type of violence and threats that they carry out in their own country that, and we have to let these elected officials here know that it's their job to stand up to these far right forces. And if they won't, then that creates more of an opportunity for us to, again, uh, marshal the forces in our own communities and, and, and show them that these elected officials, they aren't standing up for us. They're not even standing up for our rights that we're supposed to have uh, in this country to not be threatened and to be harmed by these people who don't even live here. Yeah. And, you know, the thing with Elon Omar um, is kind of interesting because it was just earlier this year, like not that long after the invasion happened that, uh, you know, she was uh, uh, pointing out, you know, the issue with all the funding and stuff like that. And you fast forward a few months and, you know, it's sort of a complete change of heart. But th- this is why I always say that, you know, uh, the, the progressives within the Democrats have such a uh, 
uh, a limited amount of influence uh, in terms of what actually happens within the party to the point where they can only seem to talk about their best ideas on uh, social media. And I don't I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but I, I have a working theory that there's like an unspoken agreement between the progressives and the mainstream of the Democratic Party to where the progressives can have whatever fantasies uh, they like. You know, they can push for the best stuff in the world as long as it's on social media and they never actually try to make it a reality. And but if they dare transgress that, and I think we saw this with the letter, if they, if they have the audacity to try to bring that into the reality, even if it doesn't fundamentally challenge U.S. policy, which that letter did not. I don't think we can uh, uh, overstate that, that that letter did not fundamentally challenge the U.S. policy. It just suggested um, another tactic while maintaining uh, uh, the funding. Right. And so we we see precisely about how this element within the Democrats are basically sort of bludgeoned into submission and into basically um, going along to get along with the sort of neoliberal uh, uh, establishments program. And maybe they'll grumble about stuff here or there. But I mean, that's about all that uh, uh, they can do unless, you know, they're willing to withstand an attack from uh, uh, their own party in best case scenario, because we've seen situations before, including with Ilan Omar, where the Democrats would join in with the Republicans in attacking them as well. And so, you know, as ever, it's a reminder of how far to the right uh, uh, politics are in the United States when peace is seen as propaganda. And so as such, we see that there's no reforming the system. There can be no such thing as a kinder, gentler form of capitalism. There is no kinder, gentler form of the imperialist system that springs out of capitalism. It is a brutal, bloodthirsty uh, uh, situation and institution by its very nature, by its very origin, in fact, in genocide and slavery. So you and I have to be clear about this and understand that ultimately this system has to be overturned. And I 100 percent agree with Jackie that we must bring about a socialist reconstruction in this country. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. One thank Esther Reverum so much for joining us today and we will see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.